Welcome to the RAQA Cafe, a conversational podcast with a couple of hosts that spend each episode talking about regulatory affairs and quality assurance topics. NAMSA is happy to bring the RAQA Cafe to you, where each episode features NAMSA consultants and their experiences. Be sure to visit NAMSA at namsa.com for more information and access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hello, welcome to the RAQA Cafe, a NAMSA MedTech podcast. On today's episode, we invite Wendy Schrader to speak to us about clinical investigation and clinical evaluation. Wendy has been with NAMSA for several years, but has been involved with research and clinical trials for more than 25 years and has a strong background in medical devices, including in vitro diagnostics and companion diagnostics. She is a certified research coordinator and project manager, as well as a certified research contracts professional. Recently, Wendy was featured as a presenter for NAMSA's webinar series on infectious disease diagnostic devices and has participated and authored other webinars and blog posts for NAMSA. Clinical investigation has become a major talking point in our industry, and it's a great time to have Wendy come visit us and share her knowledge and experience on this subject. So grab a beverage and enjoy. Hi, Rich. Welcome again to another episode of the RQA Cafe. Rich, I think we're on to episode eight. I can't believe we made this far. Today, this is a topic that I'm excited for, to be honest with you. Yeah, me too. As a regulatory person, you have you work with different cross-functional teams. And the one that we tend to work closest with, sorry, Rich, it's not quality, but it's clinical. Because we tend to like have the same way of seeing things sometimes, and we tend to really like work together hand in hand. So today, you know, happy to have Wendy with us. You know, I'm looking forward to this conversation to teach me about clinical so I can learn a lot more, so I can use it in my next project. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Wendy. I am really excited. Clinical is one of those areas. Again, I think I say this every episode, but this is an area that I really want to learn a lot more about because my role in quality, I focused in on a lot more on product maintenance than towards the the latter half of my uh, you know my career so far. And so, and when I was doing product development, you know, clinical wasn't as important as it is now. I mean, it is amazing how much it's grown and how much more important it is. So, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm fascinated by your interest because I feel like my darkest spots are quality. And then it's like we all live in a in our lightened space where we we know the drill and then everyone else's space is a black box. And we're very curious about what's inside there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So very true. Very true. But, you know, Rich, like you said, before we get started, dive in. It is RQ Cafe. So we like to ask you, Rich, what are you drinking today? What beverage have you brought to the cafe today? I had grand plans for today. I was going to make a smoothie with mango and strawberry and orange juice. And then by the time I got to it, my 19-year-old son had raided the supplies and I wasn't able to. So I pivoted and now I'm drinking a Fanta soda. But um, I actually shook all the bubbles out since we're doing a podcast. I figured... (laughs) (laughs) get the carbonation out <laughs> how about yourself wendy what do you have today i have just transitioned from coffee to water it's the noon hour now so i've i've had my fill of coffee and i'm now into water all right well we're on the same page i have some water as well but it's like a sparkling water don't need the brand you know since we're not sponsored yet rich right but you know it's a 
I just like zero calories, (laughs) zero sugar, uh, you know, but it's flavored. So that's like my drink of choice now, some sparkling water. I discovered a grapefruit flavored sparkling water that I want since we can't name brands. I love it. And then uh, what I didn't realize is that they made a vodka version of it. And I accidentally bought that once and didn't know until I opened it. So (laughs) it was also really quite good. (laughs) (laughs) Accidentally air quotes. (laughs) Right. Oh, man. The guy didn't read the label. Yeah, <laughs> that's tra- <laughs> yeah, that's, that tracks. <laughs> that definitely tracks. So, <laughs> so Wendy, you know, we're going to talk about clinical today. Again, it's one of those areas where I know clinical evidence, and I used to write CERs. Clinical investigation is for me is an area that I did not work with a lot, and I it seems like. A lot of my clients that I've worked with, that's where there's a lot of stress on their part when it's coming to submitting product, especially the EU, and that they don't have the clinical information or don't have the clinical investigation you know, records to support their product on the market. So I was wondering, would you just be so kind as to kind of start us out with and, and tell us you know, what your definition of clinical investigation is and how is it different from clinical evidence for anybody you know, any startups or companies that are just kind of delving into this environment? Sure. So when I think of clinical evidence, I think more of documentation. And when I think of clinical investigation, I think of executing data collection in real time. You know, you you need a certain amount of clinical evidence to support that device is safe and effective or to support that there's clinical utility But sometimes that evidence can be compilation of a literature search. As you mentioned, Rich, you're writing those CERs. And yet when you're looking at an investigational product, an investigational device, you typically have to put that, especially if it's a risk classified high, class three in the U.S. or whatever a high risk classification would be under MDR. I think they're alpha characters. You have to actually put that device into a clinical investigation where you use the device on human subjects and you demonstrate that it's safe and that it's effective. And so safety is is one thing, right? You measured that during a pivotal investigation in terms of how many adverse events a subject, a participant might have once the device is used or implanted. And then you typically have a co-primary endpoint with safety that demonstrates that the device is effective. And not just like in your space, you're looking that you can create a device to a specification and that it works. Whereas in a clinical investigation, you're looking that it works in the intended use population and it works because you have a clinical outcome that is favorable as it relates to the intended use of the product. So I could say also a in clinical investigation will generate clinical evidence, but there's, but it's the active version of obtaining the clinical evidence, getting the data that would support a safety and effectiveness claim related to the product intended use when you go to a regulatory agency. Okay. Before you continue, Rich, I just want to say, you mentioned CER. Could you just explain what you mean by that, CER? What is this? Uh, I did that, didn't I? We just had a discussion about when we use acronyms to describe now, the Clinical Evidence Report, CER. Thanks, Linford. <laughs> so with clinical investigation, 
I'm curious, are are there certain things that you see fairly regularly that people want to go to to get their clinical investigation going? And what things usually do they not have lined up and ready to go when they reach out to you? I mean, are there some common things that people forget to have ready or don't realize that they need to have set up and in place before they go to clinical investigation? That is a great question from a quality guy, right? (laughs) I call this clinical readiness. And frequently, especially with a client that might have a non-significant risk device. So, right, we have significant risk devices, implantables, there's implications for subject safety that are rather significant. Whereas you could have a non-significant risk study, perhaps it's in the in vitro diagnostic space where the participant in the study really is only donating a sample. It could be a venipuncture blood sample, right, or a throat swab or something like that. So depending on the manufacturer experience and the risk of the product, the manufacturer may have any continuum of exposure to what it means to be clinically ready. And a frequently asked question when we engage our clients is, is your product locked down? Is your device locked down? Have you developed it systematically in compliance with design controls, 21 CFR 820.3? Do you have the documentation? And did you do a design verification? And in the space of in vitro diagnostics, I go even further and ask for the sample type. Is it a swab? Is it blood? Are you looking at multiple sample types? And have you done your verification for all the sample types? And then Once you've design locked, can you actually generate product for a pivotal study? Can you deliver a locked down product that is unlikely to change? Now, you can run a pivotal investigation using an engineering prototype of a device, but your clearance or approval ultimately will rely on your ability to link your commercially available product, your final product that you're putting Mm -hmm on the market to your engineering prototype. And your assumption then is you're not going to invest millions of dollars into a pivotal study on a prototype that isn't going to translate easily. You do not have to redo the entire study. So product readiness is a really big deal. Product readiness goes all the way back to intended use, indications for use, selecting the right population of people for your product, because that actually translates to your inclusion-exclusion criteria in, in your pivotal study, ultimately, and then translates to your labeling. And it's interesting how you all think this is a mystery, but really you start the process in quality and reg by establishing this intended use with the agencies mm-hmm. or, or um, governing authorities. And then you continue that into the product design and into the design lock. And then we take it and put it into use in a clinical investigation for the purposes of the target population, generate that data. So I think the most common readiness pitfall is locked down product. If you hand me locked down product with a surefire intended use statement and target population, we can help you set up a pivotal study and get all the ducks in a row, the documents and the informed consent and the IRB approval and all of those kinds of things. Okay. And then what that's going to add, because this is a question that from the reg perspective that we get a lot, right? Does my device or my product require a clinical investigation or, or a clinical study, right? How do you answer that question if someone comes to you? Well, you'd probably look at precedent, 
right? I mean, we we look at predicate as a big variable in clinical study design, even in your regulatory submission. Is there a product that looks like mine, right? Do I have a Me Too product? Is this a 510k opportunity or is it de novo and novel or is the risk so high that I need a, a PMA? So you look at precedent and you look at what other kinds of evidence supported a safety and effectiveness claim and got your regulatory approval for your for your comparable product. Now that's not it's not scientific by any means, but you know, especially in the new IVDR regulations and perhaps even under MDR. The clinical evidence report points to whether or not you have enough clinical data to support a claim. Now, if you're looking at a device with a history in a literature search, that's all fine and good. But most of the time, that device has to have safety and effectiveness data in the hands of the intended user and used in the intended use population. So if you don't have device experience now, this is a really big deal in in vitro diagnostics for over-the-counter and direct-to-consumer products. You can bench test that, that assay and get reliable, repeatable results over and over and over again. But that doesn't mean that you, as a lay user who purchases the product at a CVS pharmacy, uh-huh. for example, can actually get the same repeatable, reliable test results. So I think there's a bunch of variables in answering, do I need a pivotal clinical investigation? Well, ask yourself. Do I have enough data on how this product works in the hands of the intended user in the intended use population and anything over the counter, a lot of point of care, medical devices that use software, user interfaces, you usually have to put that in the hands of the intended user. And and if it's not a clinician, you probably don't have the data and you're going to need a clinical study. I should actually, that's a really good point. I should do some kind of decision tree. That yeah. maps that out to answer that question. That'd be really cool. Well, and I actually, in my experience, I'm going to take it to quality and, hey, I'm going to talk about risk here. But with the, when the ISO uh, 14971 was updated, they separated out in, in the process proving that you've verified the implementation of risk controls and then separately you verify the effectiveness of those controls. And one of the outputs a verification of effectiveness is your clinical information. And so what I always instruct clients is when they're doing that part of their risk documentation, they should be looking at that ahead of time and say, okay, if I were to verify the effectiveness of this risk control, what would be the things that I would be looking for? Would it be something that I can pull from my CER? Is it something that I can pull from my user you know, task analyses or user Right. Did I do some human factors, engineering, usability studies, and that'll work? Or is it something that I need from clinical investigation? Because to me, those are the things that go in that column. And I think it's even recommended in in ISO somewhere in one of the the guidances or annexes later on. So that's what I recommend people do, Linford, is that because I always want clients to start out, start drafting your risk documents. Don't just focus on the phase that you need to prove right now, but look ahead. And so that effectiveness column is one of those areas where you can be asking yourself, how do I prove this risk control works is, and is effective? And if you don't have it from your use testing, your your CERs, then that probably means you need some clinical investigation of some type. It's a very good point. And just to build on that too, because you're talking about like documentation, right? So we've heard the word like protocol, used maybe for like bench testing, right? And we have, you know, have terms for protocol for clinical, right? So 
when you hear the word like a protocol for clinical, like what's the first that comes to your mind, Wendy? Or are there other documentation that we should consider as well, like informed consent? And the last piece I add to it, just to just make you catch all at once, there's different types of, I guess, clinicals that can be ran. So there's a clinical trial from, let's say, a drug side. There's clinical for IVD, might be clinical for like a med device. Are there similarities? Are there differences? Or how do you approach it? I'd say. I think of a protocol as a recipe. And when you ask me about the various buckets, you can have a recipe for a cake and you can have a recipe for casserole and you can have a recipe for, you know, an appetizer or something, right? And so there are differences, but it's all related to the actual investigational product, the intended use and the target population. So those are the first three things that you're going to look for in a protocol. Okay. If I'm, if I'm looking for a recipe, what am I making? Am I making a medical device? Am I making an investigational assay, a laboratory test? Am I making a software product, software as a medical device? Because then I'm going to figure out also what is my therapeutic area and who are the people that this device is going to make a difference for? What is my claim at the end of the day? I ask clients a lot, okay, at the end of your study, what do you want to shout from the mountaintop about your product? I want to say that in these people, my device helps find cancer in sputum cells. Okay, that's a big claim. Let's pick that apart. Let's see how we prove that, mm -hmm. right? And so by the time you get to a protocol phase, you've done all of that due diligence. You've asked yourself, you've done a market assessment of where your value is. What's the return on your investment on your medical device? And now you're going to execute on a clinical protocol and you've got the intended use, the indications for use translates into eligibility. So you want to select the right candidates for the study, and then you want them to volunteer to participate in the study. So that's where your informed consent document comes in. You have an obligation to explain to volunteers in third to sixth grade language, nothing complicated, what they're signing up for, what they're expected to pay for, what the risks are for their participation. And then you have to get an authorization to use their identifiable information, the minimum necessary to evaluate the data. And then that all gets reviewed by an institutional review board who's purpose is to protect human subjects, to make sure that the risks to someone who's volunteering to a study are outweighed by the potential benefits of the data that study is going to generate. That's their job. I could tell you some stories. <laughs> we love stories. We love stories. I walked into a company as a new employee and I said, so what does your device do? And they said, oh, we diagnose cancer. And I'm like, oh, you can't get that wrong. You can't tell someone they have cancer if they don't, and you can't not tell them if they do. So as after three to four years of working on design control and FDA pre-submissions and intended use and risks associated with each intended use or the indications for use, just to bring it down to what we ended up with as a claim, our claim is we can identify abnormal cells in sputum in people who have lung nodules that would otherwise triage to watchful waiting because you can't get the answer wrong. The risk associated with a false test result in that scenario has big implications. So the road that you take in terms of clinical study, you could have gone a number of different ways. If we wanted a screening claim, 
our protocol and our clinical trial design would have had to have tens of thousands of people, right? Because we're taking a sputum sample, we're going to tell you what your risk of cancer is, and you don't even have a nodule. Well, your risk is, I have to have thousands and thousands and thousands of you, and I have to follow you for years and years and years to figure out if my test ever predicted that you were going to have cancer. Now, while you as a manufacturer might perceive that as the mother load, and we all would love to be able to do simple testing, you really have to start weighing your business investment with what you're trying to accomplish and what's best for the public, right? Mm -hmm. So that study design, that protocol is a recipe that can be as complex as multiple arms in medical device implantables. We frequently see a comparison or a ground truth. We don't necessarily have the predicate in every study, but we do have to demonstrate, for example, that perhaps a stent graft in an abdominal aortic aneurysm is as effective in treating that aneurysm or preventing an aneurysm rupture as perhaps taking it out surgically and implanting a graft, right? So you have these two cohorts and maybe one of them is considered, you can even consider one of them a retrospective data collection in some cases, depending on what your risks are and how you pose your study design to the FDA. So there's a lot of ways to write the recipe. You said something that really came close to my heart. So when I was in grad school, just starting out my first year, one of my advisors said, you know, anybody can ask questions, but it's the people who excel in academics are the people who ask testable questions. And that almost sounded exactly like what you said about intended use and in that anybody can write an intended use, but writing a testable intended use or one that's financially right. <laughs> viable is a very different thing. And so that's, that's a, a really, I just, I love that nugget of thought now that I can go into when I'm talking with a client is that, okay, here's what you say your device can do. How are you going to prove it? And so then maybe that really should drive rethinking that question to what and it can where actually does do. It fit yeah. in the current clinical decision algorithm, right? So I always challenge clients as well, especially in the assay lab testing space, sexually transmitted disease, interesting, rowdy, rowdy topic right now. You should be able to test yourself. You should be able to go to the pharmacy, get a okay. test, get your own result at home. And if rather than all the discomforts of being in an office and disclosing your sexual history and all of this kind of stuff. Just let me go buy a test and figure out if I'm positive for this infection. The challenge there though is, and I, I've asked the client, show me where in the clinician decision tree your test fits because you don't have a healthcare provider involved at this point. And how are you going to sell the test? You know, and who's going to pay for it then becomes a, a question as well, right? If I'm a consumer and it's not covered by my insurance and I'm cash paying, can you actually develop a test that's going to return on the investment if it's going to cost me $250 to buy it at the pharmacy? It's like all these development questions distill down into what you're really trying to accomplish, what your viable minimum viable claim is, and then what evidence you need in order to support that claim. It's always a fun conversation. So that kind of leads into like a, not, not a good point. So what are some benefits and risks? either for, I guess, the manufacturer or for the client when it comes to like clinical trials? Because, you know, we talk about, you know, getting that evidence, right? From a regulatory point of view, we like evidence. That's what we live for. But what are some other benefits that you could, that, that you could think of or you've seen in your experience? 
Well, I think most people go into clinical investigations for regulatory authorizations. So the benefit is you end up with a, an FDA authorization clearance, I should say, or approval authorization is really a term we use in the EUA space, emergency use authorizations, but or CE mark outside of the U.S., whatever the geographical regulatory approval is. And then that allows you to commercialize the product. You make money. You either have an exit strategy if you're a small company or you add to your portfolio or if you're a big company and you've you've had a financial gain off of making an impact on patients and their and their clinical outcomes. You can also do clinical investigations for marketing purposes, right? You can say, well, I want to follow a population for a period of time for a certain reason. I'm trying to think of a really good example of this. I think there's a big push right now for multiplex assays as opposed to single target assays. So for example, you go to the doctor and you have an infection, you've got a cough and a fever, and you don't know if it's flu, you don't know if it's COVID, you don't know if it's RSV, you don't know if it's something else, you don't know if it's viral, you don't know if it's bacterial. And so there's a big push for syndromic panel testing. You come in with a syndrome, we want to test you for all A to Z, and there's value in that because we can at least rule out, right? And then, right? If we rule out that it's viral, then we don't need, then we can start talking about antibiotics and things like that, right? There's, There's a clinical paradigm there. There's a value. And the benefit of a trial that can demonstrate the value of a syndromic panel helps you in your marketing. So that would, that might not necessarily, that might be subsequent to a regulatory approval because you're trying to get clinician buy-in into the idea that if you just do this one panel, you don't have to do a single test, wait for the result, a single test, wait for the result, single test, wait for the result, and then finally get to the answer that you could have gotten with the syndromic panel. You might even do a clinical data collection in that same scenario to get payer buy-in right? You might need a payer to say, okay, I'll pay that bigger amount of money for a syndromic panel because of that value add that you're proving with this data set. Instead, that the benefit is greater than the test by test by test kind of methodology. Okay. There's different investigations for different reasons with a different value goal at the end of the investment. It's not cheap, though. It is not cheap to run a clinical investigation. It costs money. And that's where um, we're, we're, we're going next. Like, if you like, just talk about the cost in a sense. So you have an understanding yeah. of it. <laughs> I mean, I think that's why a market analysis is so important, too, up front. Early on in your product development, you know, what is my potential return on investment? What is the, what is the key opinion leader target group feeling about this potential product in their hand? Because running a clinical investigation is expensive, right? You have, and most of it's labor, to be honest. Most of it is paying the resources that it takes to collect the data, enter the data into an electronic data capture system. Maybe if you're a small manufacturer and you're, you're engaging a contract research organization to support that clinical, that for a regulatory submission, you're looking at compliance obligations, you're looking at monitoring and source data verification and resources that it takes to ensure that the data integrity stays intact, that you've protected the human subjects. You have these 21 CFR A12 obligations as an investigator, as a sponsor, as a site. And so you put out, I bet, at least a third 
of the cost of a clinical investigation is related to site resources alone, Mm -hmm. at least a third. And then you have all of your regulatory processing and all of your surveillance and all of your stats and all of the multitasking or multi-specialty folks that it takes to make a trial happen. Data management, biostatistics, clinical study manager. Yeah. Linford, before I met you, my last big NAMSA project was my responsibility was coordinating all of the supplies to 10 sites for a clinical study. And it happened right during COVID. So like I was responsible for masks, all the PPE, Mm -hmm. um, all the cleaning supplies and just working with the personnel. And so in each site had, you know, two staff members from NAMSA, but then probably had four or five people from the clinical site. So, you know, that's right there. That was 70 people, eh, you know, rough in the numbers just to get this (laughs) clinical study that lasted several years long. So it blew me away. If you need 40 sites because the prevalence of the target population is only going to be four out of every 500 people that walk in the door, not, I mean, not everybody has an abdominal aortic aneurysm, right? You probably mm-hmm. got to have 50 sites to get 100 patients or 200 patients in that trial. So every time you start up a site, that's an incremental cost. Mm-hmm. That's a personnel. That's an IRB review. That's um, audits. Yep. All of it. Exactly. And IRB again, that stands for <laughs> Institutional Review Board, Human Subject Protection. Yes. Yeah. Okay. No, that, this, like Richard mentioned before, this is a lot to cover, this, this clinical, and when it's just a wealth of knowledge. There's like two more points I want to hit on. One was just this thing called respiratory season. Oh, yeah. Um, Rich and I have heard about this last week, but we, yeah. from your point of view, what is this respiratory season for clinical trials? <laughs> Well, I mentioned the word prevalence, right? We learned Mm -hmm. a lot about prevalence. I mean, we're pretty good when we look at a client product and we're quoting or sample size calculation is a, is a, is a dependency on prevalence, right? So prevalence means how, how often am I going to see the target population? And then of the target population, how many of them are going to be eligible? And of the eligible, how many are going to volunteer, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot into that sample size calculation. So we learned a ton, like I said, in COVID at the burst of the season or at the burst of the pandemic, in this case, Mm -hmm. we could get, we only needed 150 people to get 30 positive cases. And we would have to have some positives and some negatives to demonstrate that the test could accurately detect one or the other. Mm -hmm. As we implemented treatments or lockdowns, whatever, the pandemic numbers go down. Suddenly now I'm quoting to a client, you're going to need 1,500 patients to get 30 positives because they're not out there anymore. Okay. And so we're very sensitive to flu season and we use the Centers for Disease Control to see tracking in terms of geographies, who's got a spike, but it's hard in a clinical investigation to chase after high prevalence places. Some diseases or some infections, for example, Legionnaire's disease is unique to usually folks who have poor building maintenance of their water sources because that's where that bug comes from. So you got to find the perfect storm of the place where the problem is, and then they have to have adequate research resources because you can't just take someone off the, I've seen this backfire in a clinic, for example. 
I got a ton of those patients. You're all just telling me I got a ton of them, but do you have a research coordinator? No, but my MA can do all the work. And then I get to the site to launch the pivotal study and the MA looks at me and says, I have no idea what you're talking about. I do not know how to consent a patient and I do not have time in my day to take this urine and spin it for 20 minutes with a timer and then put it on dry. I can't do it. Oh, so (laughs) you got the patients, but you don't have the resources. So you need that whole (laughs) perfect storm and flu season is a buzz variable that a lot of our clients are interested in. Do we know about it? Are we aware of it? Do we understand how it impacts prevalence? Do we understand geographical spread? And we do, and we have resources and we use those resources. And, you know, we also keep a bevy of information about who's got research savvy staff that can actually handle it in those geographies, (laughs) right? Because it's all got to come together. That's amazing. I've never thought about any of that stuff. So thanks, Lynn, for for asking that question. Keep asking. I'm I'm learning so much. This is a really cool conversation for me. We call it site qualification. Yeah. Yeah. So we we look at the recipe and we say, okay, what does the site need in order to do this? For an in vitro diagnostic study, so this sputum sample thing, our equipment was the size of a commercial washing machine. So it had the footprint of a commercial washing machine. It had pumps and rotors and cameras. And what it did was take cells in fluidic suspension and pictures all in 3D and reconstruct that to calculate nucleus to cytoplasm ratio because an abnormality in that calculation would indicate an abnormal cell. Okay, all fine and good. If I'm going to deploy that investigational instrument into a laboratory, my site qualification questionnaire is going to include things like, okay, you have to be able to take a machine this size. By the way, it has to plug into this kind of power outlet. And you also need a wet lab because the sample prep has to look like this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. And you have to have stains and reagents. And so Site qualification is not only is the investigator qualified, have they done their good, have they done their human subject protection training, and do you have research support staff? That's all good. And then do you have the patient population is huge in site qualification. But then all these extra things, if it's a lab instrument or if it's implantable that requires a specific radiological suite, you have to have all of that as well. And so site qual is, is a big deal. And I have, you know, you asked me before about green flags. Green flags is when you pick the right investigator with the right resources, with the right equipment and facilities, because I have seen the red flag experience go bad. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that question was coming, like the green flags. Like, <laughs> what are things that you've seen that worked really well? And Rich, I was going to say, this is the reason why we have Wendy, right? She understands this right. clinical process, right? Because until we talked about like flu season, yes, you've heard about it, right? But you didn't think this is a good time for a manufacturer to test their product, to see, get the right people they need, you know, ensure that their protocol, their recipe is actually going to be effective and cost effective as well, right? Because if you do it at the wrong time, then it's more costly, right? No, but Wendy, seriously, thank you. And the other thing I want to bring up was this, you have a panel discussion coming up, right? I think it's called Infectious Disease Diagnostic Devices and the Big oh, yeah. It's a very yeah. long title. Hopefully I got it right. So again, that's infectious disease diagnostic devices and the big move. What is that about? When can our listeners expect to get that webinar released? 
It's being advertised now. You can sign up. I believe it's Thursday, August 24th, 26th, something like that. It is the 24th. And you can go to the NAMSA website and sign up for the event. We are actually looking at this very popular push to move infectious disease testing from laboratories closer to the point of need, which is a term that one of our clients actually coined and said, the point of need is in the consumer's hands. And we've learned so much about COVID diagnostics and the ability for folks to test themselves at home. And now we're seeing manufacturers embrace that for other infectious diseases, such as HIV, sexually transmitted infections, other respiratory infections. And so our subject matter experts include biostatistics, regulatory, a laboratorian, and myself from the clinical side. And we talk about what do you need to pack up to move out of the lab and get it to the house? And there's a lot of considerations there. Product design, pivotal study design. It's an interesting panel discussion. Great group of people. So, and for those who are listening to this podcast, because we're consultants that get to do a podcast and not podcasters that consult, this podcast will, you know, be published after that event. But I was also told that that you people who are listening to this and want to hear that conversation will be able to download that, um, you know, post post yes. performance. It is an option to click on at the NAMSA resources uh, yep. portion of the website. Yes. And yeah, we'll be sure to include that, that link, Rich, once yep. this is one this episode has, has launched. No, this is a really like interesting conversation. And Rich, I'm gonna say it again. We're gonna have to bring Wendy every back. Time. Uh, every time. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to bring our, our guests back. Well, bring me back so... to talk about cost. <laughs> you know, we talked about how the primary cost of a clinical investigation is probably labor, but there are rules around how you manage payment for clinical services in a mm-hmm. in a pivotal study as well or in a clinical in- investigation so that's another hot topic sweet to my right. is that uh, the experience. sunshine act in the u.s sunshine act or oh sunshine's a different story i'm talking okay. more about clinical items and services that you can or cannot bill to insurance for a participant in oh a okay study. when do you know you can bill a, a clinical service in a trial to a payer versus when should that service be paid for by the sponsor. We have a blog and a webinar up on our website for that as well. Mm, so we have to link that as well, Rich. It's, this, is, this is why I like talking to our SMEs because they have so much knowledge willing to share with us. Rich, what else do you want to add? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I just this has been a really fun conversation. I, I was excited for this one. I'm excited for every conversation, but Really, this one was one that I knew I was going to get to sit back and learn a lot from both of you. I mean, Linford, your questions were awesome. And, and Wendy, your responses, just the way you break it down, the information, you make it sound so much easier than it really is. So I think the, at the end of the day, the what I got out of this is if you're getting into clinical investigation, hire Wendy. Yeah. <laughs> Bring in her team. I would recommend it. I would recommend yeah. it. It's such a good foundation. A good start. So, I awesome. think it's enlightening to have someone shine a little flashlight in their little black box. I had a quality person colleague that I worked with in a small company who taught me so much about design controls and documentation and risk management and FMEAs and all of that had been a giant mystery 
And she and I ended up doing a co-presentation at a clinical professional organization conference that helped show how important they intertwine ultimately, right? Like the work might not necessarily cross paths, but if the work wasn't done right in one group, it's not gonna, it's gonna Uh have an impact on the other group. Yeah. And I think in the clinical space, we forget that. We well, really do. in in the quality space, we run into that. You know, like when I'm, I always always recommend clients to realize that risk management, of all things, because it's my favorite subject, is you know, it's not a paper exercise. It should be a process that helps you be efficient in identifying what you need to do. And I hate it when I get to working with a client and we're going to verify the effectiveness and they're missing clinical investigation. You don't want to be at that point in phase in your product development to realize you've got this gaping hole that is expensive and complicated and apparently might even have a season from which you, <laughs> you should be testing. So, right. yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, we all go hand in hand and, and that's, you know, it's very easy to get siloed and just do your quality thing, just do your regulatory thing, do your clinical thing. but. I think the companies that excel in our industry are the ones that know how to communicate between those silos. I agree. Well, yes, that was great. That was a lot of fun. Thanks. So, Thanks thank again, you, Wendy. Wendy. Thanks for joining. Thank yeah. you for so, inviting uh, me. And I, I had to a talk to Wendy time. every other week. So, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to talk over <laughs> you. But, but yeah, so awesome. All right, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the RAQA Cafe podcast on clinical investigations with Wendy Schrader. We had a great visit with Wendy, and we hope you enjoyed yourself as well. On our next episode, we will jump into a conversation with Dr. Pedro Erdmans on the subject of product development from concept to commercialization. We're really excited to have this episode scheduled. If you'd like to hear more podcasts from the RAQA Cafe, please visit us at www.namsa.com, and don't forget to bring your favorite drink.